Hear God's word from Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That's the bread that fed the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. And they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, amen, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds or literally munches on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, or lives or dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard thing, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Ascending back into heaven. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He said that earlier in verse 44. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, our God, stands firm forever. And let's pray now. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit and give us life. We truly have nothing without you. We can do nothing unless you come and abide in us and your word abide in us. So now help me, God, because I have nothing to offer your people but you, Jesus, the living bread. There's no life in me. There's no life in my words, but your words, the words of the Holy One, have eternal life. And we believe that. Help us to come to know it more today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we read the words of the Mission for Living Hope Church. And one of those phrases says, we are 
about sharing our resources and responsibilities. And that makes us somewhat different than maybe other churches you might have attended before, where you show up and it's a dark room and you don't know anybody around you except your friends that you came with. And then you leave and you never really talk to anybody, you never really get to know anybody. But it's a cool experience, right? They've got like great music like we have. Let's thank our musicians for the great music we have here. And, you know, sometimes we turn the lights out in here, but most of the time we leave them on. So, you know, it's a different experience when you come to a place where you get to know the people sitting next to you. You see their tears. You feel them on your shoulder when you're giving them a hug or praying for them. And you get to know them over lunch and you get to know them during discussions throughout the week over meals and as we gather. It's, it can be messy. But we, we say in our motto, in our, in our mission, we are here to share our resources and responsibilities with each other. Because each of you has resources. Some of you might have very limited financial resources. Others might have more. Some of you have responsibilities that you know you have a maturity and a faith that God has given you and knowledge that you need to share with someone. Or maybe it's life experience. It's experience of growing up on the streets. No one else has experienced that in, in, uh, you know, until they hit those streets like you've been on. And, and you can share that with them. You have a responsibility to teach them, to, to give them a window into your life and what it's like to be in their shoes. And so we know that there are plenty of needs here at Living Hope and in the neighborhood, obviously, that we're in, and in the city of Chicago. But it's, it's not just meeting people's physical needs that we're talking about. It's not just serving food on Sundays or having a food pantry. It's, it's not just helping people find jobs, and we're trying to do those things. But it's more. It's what Jesus mentions in John 6, verse 27, which we didn't read this morning, but we read a couple weeks ago. Don't just work for the food that perishes. That means don't just get a college degree or a job, even if it's Better than minimum wage, just don't be satisfied with that. He says, work for the food that endures to eternal life. And that's what we're really trying to do at Living Hope, is help each other with our resources, take responsibility where we have those, and ultimately and deepest, bring people in relationship to Jesus. Because the food that we give will be eaten, and it will go through the system, and we'll need to do it again. And that's the food that perishes, the things we work for in this world. But Jesus says... There is food that I've given you, the bread of life that endures forever. People run out of food. People run out of hope. People run out of time. But Jesus says, what I'm giving you in myself will last forever. Last week, my family drove to New Hampshire. That's 1,000 miles, 1,000.0 miles we drove. And then 1,000 plus on the way back because we went through Canada to see some of the northern border instead of just the southern part of the border between the U.S. and Canada. And we were at the wedding. I was officiating the wedding for Ben and Rebecca. It was a beautiful time in the mountains of New Hampshire. But after the first night on the road, we were in a small hotel. I was actually sleeping on the floor because we just had one bed in that room, one big bed. And that morning at 5 a.m. we got a phone call from my father-in-law. And he said, Shannon, I'm sorry to tell you that your mom has cancer. So my mother-in-law has an advanced form of cancer, and it really put a cloud, obviously, over the rest of our travels. Um, but we trust the Lord's wisdom. We trust His resources. We trust His mercy and his, his love to us in this. And so we dropped off Shannon yesterday in Michigan to be with her mom for the week to help her navigate this, this first week of more consultations and when her chemo starts. And of all the resources that the medical world knows today, we have hope in some of that. But what is our hope ultimately in? It's not in the doctors, it's not in the chemo, it's in Jesus, the bread of life, the, the, the great physician, the medicine that is for not just our bodies, but our souls. He is the word of life. He has the words of eternal life. And that's what we're hoping on. That's what we're banking on. That's what any of our needs that we bring to the table today, 
The answer is met in Jesus. Not just finances or food or medicine or a job, but our answer is found in Jesus. That's the story of John 6. It's a story about hope and life in Jesus. Twenty times, Jesus says in this short passage from verses 28 through 69, he says the word life or living. I am the living bread. I will give you life. I will give you eternal life. Twenty times he says that. I think that's the main theme of the passage. If, if you know anything about uh, literary cues, we've got a few here. And then if you add the phrase, and I will raise you up on that last day. If you look to me and trust in me, I will raise you up on that last day. He says that three times. That's talking about resurrection life in the end. So that's 23 times. We're, we're told about the life in Jesus and living in Jesus in this vital relationship that he gives us. A few weeks ago, we looked at this passage in verses 27 through 36, that the Father has sent the Son into the world, and the Son has given himself as the bread of life to the world. So there's a giving that comes from the Father to the Son to us. And that was an open invitation to any who would believe. Come any who would believe in Jesus and take the bread of life that's been given for you. And then we looked at verses 37 through 48, which was the Father then taking us as God's people and giving us to Jesus as a gift. He takes us, we're the possession that Jesus has redeemed with his own blood, and he gives us to the Father, and we're secure in his hand. So there's an open invitation, there's an invincible promise that will not be shaken, as we sung about today. And today, we're looking at this chunk of scripture, moving from the impartial invitation that's open to everyone, to the invincible promise, to today, this offer of imperishable life of the deepest degree. Life that will never end, and life that you cannot find anywhere else of this quality imperishable life, imperishable life to the greatest degree. That's what Jesus is giving us in himself. Now, I, I borrowed shamelessly from the title of the movie and the memoir, uh, Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Julie Roberts, but I, I shamelessly plagiarized it and changed it to the title of today's sermon, which is Eat, Drink, Live. Bless you. Eat, Drink, Live. Jesus comes to us, and there's three things I want to out from the text today. The first is that he's telling us how to live. It's by coming to him the bread of life because he is the only antidote, the only answer to the deepest needs that we have. And those needs are to be expressed in terms of decay and in terms of disappointment. So there's a rate of decay that the world is experiencing. You could call it entropy. You could call it uh, the the second law of thermodynamics. But this is the, the fact is that things fall apart. And people wear out. Bodies wear out. We get cancer. We get old. Money runs out. Like a hole in the bucket. You just keep working, and it just keeps flowing through. Like, like sand through your fingers, like sand through the hourglass, life just keeps going, going, until it's gone. There's a decay. There's disappointment in that. Think about that. What Jesus is teaching here is about things that will perish, like the bread that was given to the Israelites in the desert. The 40 years of wandering, they, they were... Slaves for 40, 400 years in Egypt, and then God delivers them and says, now I'm going to give you the promised land and all the food you can eat. And they complained, and they grumbled, and they did not believe. And so then he gave them a period of testing for 40 years, and he gave them, though, provision in the desert. What was it called? What was that stuff called? It was called, what was that stuff called? That's what it's called. It's called manna, which means, what is this? But whatever it was, it was good, and they ate it, and it kept them alive for 40 years in the desert. And... Jesus says, but that food that kept them alive, that food perished. If you 
collected too much of it day by day, it would spoil, it would perish. And the people perished too, because they all died in the wilderness. That whole generation was dead before the second generation of their children entered the promised land. But Jesus says, I'm giving you something better, a bread that doesn't perish or spoil, living bread, and I am alive, and I'm going to keep you alive forever, eternally, to the greatest degree you could ever dream of, eternal life. When we were passing through Canada on our trip back home, that's where I met my wife, by the way, and we did our honeymoon and our one-year anniversary, by the way, but we hadn't been back in 18 or 19 years, so we decided to take the kids, and we passed through a place I'd never been, which is called Casa Loma. Anybody ever been to Casa Loma in Toronto? It's the house on the hill. It's not just a house, it's a mansion, it's a palace, it's a uh, castle, really. It was built by a man back in the early 1900s named Henry Paulette. He and his wife, Mary, built this place. took four years to build before they could move in, and when they moved in, it was still unfinished uh, by the time they moved out. And they lived there for 12 years in this huge castle. How many bedrooms were there, like 38 or something? It was incredible. The man had so much money, he didn't know what to do with it. As Toronto below, the city below, was a slum, essentially, and people, you know, just in utter poverty, this man sat up on this hill with his fountains and his servants and all the fancy things that he had in his house. And, and yet, after only 12 years of living in there, the financial markets crashed, his financial situation personally was in ruin, and he and his wife had to move out of that house and sell off everything at auction. The entire place, no longer his. His wife, Mary, heartbroken and anxious over moving out, within a year died of heart failure. Everything seems to fall apart. All of our great plans, even the richest people will die and their, their goods and their, their, uh, their treasures will be gone with them. Life just seems to take so much effort to stay afloat because there's just this degree of decay and degree of disappointment that we experience all the time. Ask yourself the hard questions. What are you working so hard to achieve in life? Why are you working so hard? Putting in all that time and money and sleeplessness. And, and, and what are you afraid of losing or not ever getting? Maybe there's some things that you just haven't even touched them or tasted them yet, but you, you, can, you dream so hard and you, you pursue them so passionately. And yet... They're just going to slip through your fingers one day, like everything else. What is it in your life that's fallen apart? That you, just, you know it, it's just it's fallen apart. It's broken. It's degraded. It's disappointing. Like the people of Israel in the wilderness, they, they saw a lot of decay and disappointment. And the, the theme of the wilderness, when I think of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, I think danger high, resources low. That's what I think of in the wilderness. Danger was high, disappointments were high, decay was high, resources were low. It's hard to come by. They needed a miracle. They had to have a miracle to survive, and guess what the manna was? It was their miracle. It was bread from heaven, literally, that God gave them to survive. But guess what? Even the miracle perished. That's what Jesus teaches here in John 6. Even the miracle that they needed so desperately would be gone, and they would perish. What they needed was something deeper, an imperishable life with a deeper degree of joy, satisfaction, and life. The second thing that I want to show you from the text is this. Jesus is giving us a very difficult metaphor. I was trying to find an image for later in the sermon today, which you'll see. And as I search for images, 
several images popped up which were like sermon series that other people preached, and it was like, the hard things of Jesus, or like, say what, Jesus? Like, these were common themes in the Google images that come up. Like, what are you talking about? This is a very hard teaching. The second thing I want to show you is, this is a very difficult metaphor that Jesus uses, and his disciples essentially abandon ship. There's a mutiny. They leave him for this teaching. But there's a deeper thing going on. They're not just leaving him because he's saying hard words. There's a certain type of disloyalty. When your heart is not loyal or faithful to someone, when you're looking for an excuse to get out of that relationship, and that's what's going on here, the disciples needed an excuse to leave Jesus. And this was their excuse, the hard teaching that he gives them in this passage. Have you ever been in a relationship and someone's just looking for an out? They're looking for an escape hatch? They're looking for a back door? How can I get out of this relationship? Or maybe you've been that person. And, you know, someone says one thing, and you could easily forgive them, or you could easily say, well, other people have done that, but that's your excuse to abandon ship, a mutiny. You leave them. And that's what's happening in this difficult metaphor. What is a metaphor? Let's just make sure we know what that is. Well, you know what a simile is. Some people use similes more than metaphors. They, they would say, like, 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 like a lot, you know, like. Well, a simile, just think, is when you say like a lot. If Jesus would have said, I am like the bread of life, that's the simile. It's similar. I'm like the bread of life. But Jesus actually uses a metaphor, which is a direct comparison. I am the bread of life. Eat me, drink my blood, and you'll live. I am. He makes a very direct comparison. It's a metaphor, and it really messes with their minds, these disciples that were following him and the crowd of people that had come. Verse 52, when Jesus says, in verse 51, I'm the, the living bread that came down from heaven, and if you want to live, then you have to eat of me, my flesh, which gives life to the world. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? There's a lot of head-scratching going on in that little holy huddle. They're disputing, they're disagreeing. Jesus knows that they're grumbling later, he would say, about his own disciples. And, and then what does he do? He doesn't say, well, hold on, guys. Hold on, let me explain this to you, okay? I don't mean it literally. I mean it metaphorically. I am the bread is a metaphor. And if you just come and like spiritually eat of me, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He, he says, okay, I see that you're choking on this truth. You're choking on it. So I'm going to cram more truth down your throat, even harder. But I'm going to say it now. You have to actually eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he, he uses a different word now, not just eat. But now he says, you have to munch on me. It's like the motion of the jaw, the teeth, and the crunching sounds. This is what they're thinking. It's like, he's telling us we have to munch on his flesh if we want to live. This is crazy. Now, we don't know what he means. I'm assuming they didn't literally take him as a cannibal or encouraging cannibalism. You have to eat of a human flesh. But what could he mean? We don't know. They're grumbling. They're disputing. They're looking for an excuse now. And they've got one. Because this is too hard of a teaching. Too hard of a teaching Jesus says, okay, you're choking on these truths that I'm the bread. Like, I'm the Son of God coming from heaven. Now, chew on this for a while. Chew on my flesh. Drink my blood or you're going to die. Now, I can, I can promise you that Jesus did not, <clears throat> he, he was not going to be used as a consultant for like a ch church growth conference for this type of teaching. He's not, he's not seeker friendly here. You know, seeker friendly would be like this. Like, oh, hold on. Don't misunderstand me. Let's just, you know, have a discussion group about it or something like this, a breakout session. I mean, this is not what he does. He just comes with harder truth right down the middle, and they don't know what to do with it. And, and some people start to make 
rumors and gossip about Christians because of teaching like this, in the second century, uh, people began accusing Christians of being cannibals, of coming to the Lord's Supper like we're going to have today, the, the Lord's table, and saying, Jesus told them to eat of his flesh and drink his blood, so those Christians are wacko, they're, they're cannibals. And that was a rumor in the second century. It might have been circulating in the first century when John wrote this gospel. And maybe John is just saying, to those who have ears, let them hear. To those that think this is too hard of a teaching, and you don't want to stick around and ask questions and find out what it really means, I guess you're not going to stay long enough. But let it be clear that anybody who has half a brain should know that Jesus was not advocating cannibalism or vampirism, you know, being a vampire, drinking his blood. This is not what he's talking about, literally, the law of God, the, the Jewish law, strictly forbade drinking blood. Strictly forbade eating meat with blood in it. Well, there we go. I'm not sure how that happened. What's going on? Oh, not yet, not yet, not yet. Man, you've got to save the punchlines for later. Okay, there we go. Save the punchlines for later. Okay, so uh, um, I'll, I'll give you a cue, okay? So <laughs> what was I talking about, vampires or something? Okay, the law of God. The law of God. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. The law of God. <laughs> don't drink blood. Don't eat meat with blood in it. I was just listening to some Bible on audio yesterday with my kids driving back from, from uh, where were we? Pennsylvania. And the story of Saul, the first king of Israel, and his son Jonathan, and a battle against the Amalekites, the wicked Amalekites. And Saul tells his soldiers and the men, do not touch food until we win this battle and destroy the Amalekites. And so no one had eaten for a very long time. And when they finally won the battle and they got the animals, the victory, the, the victory and the spoils of war, what did they do? They didn't cook the animals, they just started eating them. Raw! Like sushi, but these were like lambs and cows and things. And they're eating the animals with the blood in them, and Saul says, stop, stop. This is a great sin against the Lord. You may not eat meat with blood in it. So, sorry for those of you that like your steak really rare. At least the Old Testament law says you shall not do that. And Jesus, though, says you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh if you want to live. He doesn't say, hey, if you do this, you're going to die because you're crossing the line and God will be angry with you. He's saying you must do this to live. This is a hard teaching. It's a hard thing. Even his disciples in verse 60 say, this is too hard. The word is scleros. You know, if you know anything about like your body and disease, there's something called sclerosis, which is like a hardening of certain parts of your liver if you drink too much or things like this. And so this is a hard teaching. Killing it. What can we do with this? This is too much. And they're not saying who can listen to it, although literally that's what says who can listen to it, because they have already heard it. What they're saying is like who can believe it? Who can take this in and accept it? This is a hard saying, Jesus. It's, it's embarrassing, to be honest, Jesus. Like, why are you talking like this? You could have kept a really big following if you would have just changed the wording a little bit. Like, semantics, Jesus, is about marketing. Marketing is really important, Jesus. Did you not know that? We can help you with this, okay? We'll get a consultant team to come in, and they will help you rebrand your teaching, okay? This is what you need, church, right? You need good marketing so the world will believe that Jesus is the way, right? Not, that's not Jesus' way, at least. He, he just comes straight down and crams down their throat and says, if you want to know more about that, if you want more where that came from, keep seeking me. Keep asking, and you'll find the truth. You'll find the truth. It's kind of like people who say, I want a spiritual Jesus, and I want spiritual things, I want spirituality, but I'm not really that religious. All this talk about flesh and blood and religion and like the Lord's Supper and this, these things that Jesus taught us to do, 
just kind of weird. I would rather just have like my own experience with God out on Lake Michigan or in the woods or wherever you might go. I don't. I, I just want to do yoga. That's what I want to do. I don't want to read the Bible and have someone else tell me what to do. I don't like the authority of that. Kind of reminds me of that when we think about these these folks who are like, hey, we're looking for an excuse not to have to follow a rabbi named Jesus. We're looking for someone who will allow more freedom and flexibility in our religion, in our faith. But Jesus' goal isn't about marketing or making people happy as much as speaking the truth. You're in a world that's very discouraging. There there are a lot of disappointments. You will experience decay. I want you to live. I want you to know truth. I want you to know real life. And not only comes if you come directly to me and just start eating and drinking of who I am. Some of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him in verse 66. So John 6.66, that's an easy one to remember, right? 666, right? What happened in this verse? John 666. They turned away from him. They betrayed him. They left him. They made an excuse. Here was a very convenient reason. And they left. They walked away. And there were only 12 left at this point. You know, we started chapter 6 with 5,000 men, plus the women and children that we didn't even add up. That's maybe 15,000 or more. 5,000 men began with Jesus saying, we love what you're doing, Jesus. We like the free bread when he multiplied the bread and the fish. We love that. More of that, please. Unlimited food supply. That's great. But now there's only 12 left. All the others have left. All the other 5,000 people are gone. And he says on top of that, there's one of you, Judas, who will also betray me. And I've known this from the beginning. How is it that people can hear and see such amazing miracles? I mean, isn't it seeing is believing, right? If you show me a miracle, God, if you prove yourself empirically to me, if you show me the evidence, I will certainly believe. Not exactly. Jesus just fed 5,000 people and they all left except for 12. The original. The originals. What kind of grace is required? What kind of power is necessary to sustain life and faith when life is so discouraging? It's so disappointing. Well, Jesus tells us in verse 44 and verse 65, he repeats it again. He says this, That's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This is a miracle. It's not a miracle happening in front of their faces again. It's a miracle happening inside their hearts. More bread in front of their faces would have been miraculous, but it wouldn't have lasted. It would have perished. They would have perished. But now God's doing something in their hearts. He's drawing them to Jesus. The Father is drawing them to Jesus. Miraculously. He's drawing us to be faithful despite the hard times. To be faithful despite the cancer. To be faithful despite the, the joblessness. To be faithful despite the disappointments. And the fatigue. Calvin says this. The hardness was in their hearts and not in the saying of Jesus. Whoever humbly submits to Christ's teachings will find nothing hard or rough in it. Jesus' teaching is hard, okay? It's a hard metaphor, but if, if we understand what he's saying, there's life in it. But there's really nothing hard about Jesus' teaching. It's the hardness of their heart, the sclerosis of their heart that was the problem. His words are spirit and life. If we would only hear the life in them. Jesus says this in verses 63 and following. He says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. The spirit gives life, and my words are spirit and life. 
That's our third point here that I want to draw out. Is the, the metaphor now begins to take on its true meaning. And it's, it's necessary that we believe the metaphor and actually act on it. So it's, I'm calling it the mandatory metaphor. It's not just mysterious or difficult. It's mandatory that we understand and believe and enter into this reality. We must have Jesus. We must have him to have life. We must have his hospitality, which is his life shared with us. We must have union with Jesus, which is his life in us. So let's look at those two, hospitality and union with Christ, and how this is mandatory. We must have life in this way with him. We must have a relationship with him. We must have fellowship with him. We must be in his presence, sit at his table, and eat of his body and drink of his blood. We must eat, pray, and live. We must have this Jesus. Now, let's think about the hospitality he describes in this text. It's, it's first a deep hospitality. Eternal life means life to the greatest degree. The deepest life you can imagine. The qualitative life that Jesus gives is better than anything else. Deep hospitality. It's long hospitality. You'll never die if you eat the living bread that Jesus provides. You'll never die. Okay, you will die. But then you'll live again forever. That's the, the you know, proper way to say it. The, the length of hospitality. Then there's the width of the hospitality. Look how wide his hospitality is. His table is so broad. He says, I give my life for the life of the world in verse 33 and in verse 51. My flesh given to you is life for the whole world, not just for the Jews, but for all nations, all ethnic groups, all classes of people. It's a wide hospitality. There's a wideness to his table. And then it's, there's a height to it. Think about the height of his hospitality. He says in verse 60. Two, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's saying, I came from heaven. I'm the living bread come down from heaven. I'm going back to heaven, and I will prepare a place for you there. And we believe that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're actually feasting in him, with him in heaven, in the heavenly places, like Ephesians 2 says. Or Jesus isn't just coming down to earth. He's actually taking us into another dimension spiritually. I, I, don't, I don't see heaven, but I believe that I am rooted there with him. My, my destiny, my identity, and my place is there with him. And so he's saying, I'm taking you to the height of hospitality that you've never known on the earth. Hospitality. I'm giving you bread, and I am the bread. I'm sharing life with you. I am your life. This is imperishable life to the deepest degree but something deeper than just hospitality, Jesus takes it deeper still. He says, now I want you to know what it means to be in me and I in you. Union with Christ. This is mandatory that we understand and enter into union with Jesus. What does that mean? Verse 55. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now when you take food and drink and put it in your body, it only stays there for a little bit and then it passes out. Right? Then you have to put more in to keep alive and healthy, and nourished. Jesus says, what I'm giving you myself, a relationship with me, is true drink and true food. And he says in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. I'm talking about I'm going to remain in you, and you're going to remain in me. We're going to live in this mutual, indwelling relationship that I will never leave you or forsake you. Abide in me in a real relationship. And the disappointments of life will come. And the decay will occur. But I will never perish. Your salvation will never perish. Spoil or fade, First Peter says. We have an imperishable salvation, an imperishable Savior. This is real food and real drink. It's a real life with Jesus. 
One commentator says, Jesus must be as real and useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. Does that seem a little trite? Does that seem a little crass? But to most people, Jesus is not as real as a hamburger or french fries. When you open the refrigerator, you think, well, that's what's going to keep me going. Whether I pray or not, or read the Word or not, or you know, fellowship with God's people and worship, that's secondary, that's optional. But what I really need is I need to study, I need to make money, I need to get my job, I need to get a spouse, I need to have a good family, a good house, and a good car, and I need to do the things of life. Yes, you do, but is that what's going to last? I just took a tour of Casaloma, and there was nobody living there. Everybody's just touring what used to be something great for someone who had dreams and plans. Jesus says, I'm the only thing that lasts. I'm the only thing truly real and truly useful to you. And so come and eat and drink of me. Take my flesh and eat of it and drink my blood, he says. Like a child coming home from the hospital, like a baby being carried in utero in the womb. Jesus says, has anybody in here ever been in a womb before? You know how snuggly and comfortable that is and how peaceful it is in there? And then they force you to come out into this harsh world. Why did you have to do that? You know, it was so nice in there. And we just want to get back in that fetal position sometimes, back to where we used to be. And this is what Jesus is saying. Like, I will take you in. You can abide in me. I will wrap you in my arms, take you into my heart. You'll be in the, the spiritual womb of God. You will. God's not a woman. He's not a man either. He's, he's a father, though. But you understand what I'm saying? He will take you into his heart, into his life, into his home. And you'll never be kicked out. Then there's adoption. We have our first child, Ellie, here, was adopted, and she was in our hearts before she was in our home. Never in Shannon's womb, but she was in our hearts from the beginning, right? And that's when the picture would come in handy, right here. That's when the picture would come So go ahead and hit the light. So when we brought Ellie home, I just thought she was so cute. I thought she was so cute. The second day that we had her, when she was in the hospital, I had her in my arms just like this. I was holding her both hands, and I would put her face up to mine. I was singing songs and praying prayers and you know, teaching her Bible memory verses already because she's very smart. And, you know, day number two, and as I put my face up there and started kissing her forehead and kissing her little nose, she actually, like, reached up with her mouth and started sucking on my nose. <laughs> like a tractor beam suction. It was amazing the force that she had on this thing. And she just started sucking on my nose, and I was like, whoa, I, I didn't want to, like, you know, tell her to stop because it, it, it was painful, but it was kind of cute at the same time. And after, after that experience, I was like, wow, this little girl, she's something. Like, I love her, and she is so cute. I just want to eat her up. You know, she's trying to suck my nose off, but I just want to eat her up. So one day, we set a place at the table here. This is when she was just a few weeks old. Got the ketchup out, the fork and the knife, put her on the plate. And as you know, you know, she was so cute. I just wanted to eat her up. But as you know, she's here today, much taller. <laughs> Obviously, I did not eat her, right? But I said that metaphorically. Okay? And, and people say things like, oh, I just want to eat you up. I just want to, you know, romantic lovers say things like, I just, you know, you intoxicate me. What does that mean? What, what intoxicates you? Well, when you take alcohol or drugs and it affects your brain chemistry and it gets into your system and your bloodstream. Like, this is the way we talk. This is what Jesus is saying. You have to take me in like a lover, like a father, like a child. This is our relationship. It's so intimate. It's so profound. It's so loving. You have to eat me and drink me, and then you'll live. Then you'll see how good life can be. It's a hard teaching, but it's a good teaching. I don't want them to teach anything else. I want more of you, Jesus. I want more fellowship and hospitality and union with you. I believe. I believe. Now, some people will say, well, 
just as the Jews disputed back then, we have some disputes today about Jesus' teaching here and the teaching of the Lord's Supper. Even and so, what better place to say it than at the end of my sermon here? What do we believe about the Lord's Supper? We're about to share it together in a little bit. What do we believe about the Lord's Supper? Well, uh, I was sitting at the wedding last week in New Hampshire with a, a brother who's a, a former U Chicago student. Now he's at Boston College studying theology, so he's studying about God. And uh, I said, well, what are you learning about God? And, you know, some things like, well, uh, I didn't totally agree with most of what he said, but at the end of it, he said, you know, um, I, I'm just trying to become more faithful to the Scriptures, and that's what I like to hear. If you can keep being faithful to the Scriptures, then you're going to be okay. And he said, well, I am a Roman Catholic, and, and I do believe that what kept me as a Roman Catholic, despite all the bad press the church is getting these days, is, he says, my belief in the Eucharist, which means the meal of Thanksgiving, the Lord's Supper. He says, why I'm still a Catholic is because I believe that we have the best explanation in that Jesus is alive and he's with us and we're actually eating and drinking of him. And he says, that's why I remain Catholic today. And I said, well, you know, what Bible verses like most help you understand this teaching, which is called transubstantiation, which means that the, the bread and the wine actually are transformed into the literal substance of Jesus' body and blood. The Catholic Church teaching is that when you take the bread and the prayer of the Mass is said over it, it actually transforms into another substance. Really, literally, the bread becomes the body of Jesus. And really and literally, the wine becomes the blood of Jesus. And I said, where do you go in the Scriptures to... to like, I haven't seen that, that clearly in Scripture, and I'm preaching from John 6 this coming week, I said, and it's kind of like the spirit and life thing going on where Jesus says, my words are spiritual and they're life-giving, but not not literal, and, and he said, well, you know, it's not so much in the scripture, it's just in the church teachings. And I said, well, okay, that's an important distinction, that, you know, we come to Jesus and we want to understand, what does this meal mean, after reading a passage like this? That you say, I have to munch on your flesh and drink of your blood, otherwise I don't live. Well, and here's what we would believe, and I'll give you a couple clues from the text before we uh, lay it all out there. Here's one clue. One clue is, in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now, the only time Jesus has used the word flesh so far in, in this chapter is when he keeps saying, eat my flesh, eat my flesh, eat my flesh. Now he says, the flesh is no help at all. I'm confused. This is a hard teaching. What do I do with it? Jesus, you said, I have to eat your flesh. Then you say, the flesh does nothing for me. I have to have flesh or I die. And then you say, it, it's worthless. It does nothing. The Spirit, though, he says, the Spirit which is what matters. The Spirit is what makes everything uh, valuable. The Spirit is what gives us insight. The Spirit is what gives us life. So he says, my words are spirit and life. Now when I hear Jesus say this, what I'm hearing is, I think, the all-defining statement of this whole chapter about what does it mean to eat and drink of Jesus. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. When he says, my words that I just said to you are spirit and life, what I'm hearing is, don't take me literally. Don't think that I'm talking about cannibalism or transubstantiation. This is what I believe, is that he's saying, by faith you will come to me and participate with me in union, in, in a deep relationship, because my blood isn't just a cup that I'm holding out to you and say, drink this fluid and you'll be saved. What I'm saying is, you have to participate in my death for you, my, my saving work on the cross. I gave my life for sinners. If you refuse that work and don't enter into it, you die. If you come into that life that I've given you, where I've died for you and I rose from the dead for you, if you enter in fellowship and, and join my table of hospitality and, and have this indwelling relationship by faith, then you live. That's what it means to eat and drink with Jesus Christ, is to come by faith, 
and to believe in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and to walk with him. Many of his disciples turned away and it says they no longer walked with him from that day on. To continue in a relationship with Jesus is to believe, to eat and drink, and to continue walking and living life with him. No matter how hard it gets. No matter how hard his teaching is. This is what it means. So in our tradition, in the Reformed church tradition that we are in as Presbyterian uh, churches, and I know many of you aren't Presbyterians, that's okay, you don't have to be, to come to Living Hope, but this is just, if you, if you get to the, you know, the cheat sheet, if you ask the pastor, like, what do you really believe? This is what I believe. I believe that the Eucharist, the, the Lord's table, is that we are really and truly feeding on Jesus Christ. Because he says, my flesh is true food and my blood is real drink. I believe we're really truly feeding on Jesus, but we're doing it by faith. It's not our teeth and our jaws and our stomachs that are saving us. It's not what we put into our bodies. It's, it's the faith that we have in Christ. And he's meeting with us by his spirit. My words are spirit. His spirit is among us. When we worship together, when we hear his word, when we come to the table and see his word visibly demonstrated, and we take that and we put it in our bodies, it's our faith that's eating of Christ and drinking of Christ. And he's taking us into the heavenly places, giving us a seat in heaven itself, saying, for a little while... I'll take you away from the mess and I'll give you a place of worship and a place of presence with me. To eat and drink means we believe the gospel, which is a gift freely given to us and all that we must do is receive it. We receive your death. We receive your life, Jesus. We receive your righteousness on our behalf. We receive something that's not in me. It's not something I can get in my refrigerator or at my school or in this world. It's nothing I can produce on my own. This is something that came from heaven to earth, and I receive it. Your life, your truth, Jesus Christ. In verses 68 and 69, the true disciples, those 11 that remained, said to him, when he said, well, what about you? What about you? Are you going to leave as well? Are you going to turn away and stop following and walking with me? And they said, Peter, of course Peter, the spokesman, the one who always spoke up and said something, Simon Peter answered him, in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? What else are we supposed to do, Jesus? We don't necessarily like the teaching. It's hard. But where else should we go? You alone are our satisfaction. You alone can be trusted. You alone have offered yourself completely to the world. Where else can we go? You're the only one. You are God alone. There's no one else who has promised and delivered like you have. You have the words of eternal life, Peter said. You have the words of eternal life. It's your word that we believe and have come to know. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I try to think of some great illustration to end the sermon today. I can't really outdo what Peter says. That's right. Verses 68 and 69. Lord, we don't know exactly what you're saying. We, we, don't, we can't explain it to everybody, but what else do we have? We only have you. We would like to preach a different message to the world and say it's easier and that you can do it some other way and you can just have spirituality without Jesus, but there's really no other way. Where else can we go? What else can we say? We have to stick with you. We have to be in union with you, sitting at your table, eating and drinking of you, Jesus. We believe and we've come to know that you are what the Jews would not have said of anyone except for God himself. You are the Holy One. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah. You're the eternal one, the one that's different, the one that's better, the one that is a degree of life better than anything else this world can give. And so in your imperishable, indestructible life, we find life itself, and we're going to stay with you, Jesus, from now 
into eternity. And if that's true for you, if that's your heart, then pray with me that God would seal these words to our hearts today. And I'm going to use the words of Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 15, to begin the prayer. Jeremiah said to the Lord, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. And so, Jesus, we've heard your word. We've drunk it in. We've eaten it. We've tasted and seen that you are good. To know you, to believe and have fellowship with you is what was experienced in part. Continue to abide in us, we pray. We know that you will, because that's your unshakable promise. That if we truly believe, you'll make your home in us, and our home will be with you. We'll be in this relationship that will never end. And no matter how, how hard life gets, how much decay we see or experience, how many disappointments we have to bear, that you are ours. You are our gift. God has given you, the Son, to us, to people. And we receive you. And we trust you and we treasure you. We take you at your word. We take you by faith. We eat and drink of you today, Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in your name. <clears throat> Amen. Amen.